Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. Well, for some reason, I feel like I should, should greet you saying top of the morning to you uh, this morning. Um, you aren't even paying attention, Abigail. Come on. Um, <laughs> I am, I am great, grateful to be back. Uh, Annie and I, as y'all know, were, were out of town last week. I got to preach my, my best friend's uh, installation service up in New York and, and be part of that sweet uh, church that, that is seeking to, to bring the gospel to, to Hoboken, New Jersey. And it was a great time to be up there. We're going to look this morning at uh, the book of Hosea. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 16. So, um, so if you have a Bible, turn there with me. Uh, it comes right after the book of Daniel. So if you see that, you're getting close. And, and we're actually going to start in verse 14. Uh, Jay preached up through verse 15 last week. Uh, verses 14 and 15 are kind of a bridge uh, that, that join the two parts of chapter 2. So we're going to relook at verse 14. It's not because I think Jay missed something there at all. It's just it, I want us to see the transition uh, that, that is happening there. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. Hosea chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, then we'll read down through the end of the chapter. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from, your, from her mouth. And they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow for her myself in the land and I will sow her for myself in the land and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Most gracious Father, as we look at these wonderfully gospel-rich verses, I ask that you would strengthen me by your Spirit, that I may proclaim this word of hope to your people in his power, that we may be strengthened in our faith, confident in the security you provide for us, and sure of our identity in Christ. We ask this in his most precious name. Amen. Well, there's kind of a, a quirky saying when you see uh, uh, a therefore, you need to ask what it's there for. It's kind of a, a thing that people say as a rule of interpretation. And, and so here our passage starts with therefore. And so we need to stop and think for a second what it's there for. Because it really is kind of mind-blowing when we put this all back in context. Because this is, uh, this, this is a word that 
that, that is announcing, as, as uh, Bruce Waltke says, an anticipated response after a statement of certain conditions, right? So in other words, this is the, the kind of logical consequence of what's just been said, right? Now, think about what most of Jay's sermon was about last week. What has just been said? Plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring, lest I strip her, strip her naked. I'm basically, I'm going to get, I'm done with this. I'm bringing punishment. I'm bringing discipline. I'm bringing judgment. And it feels like when we read those words, that it's kind of just all coming to an end. But then... At the end of that, I will punish her for the feast day of bells when she, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, right? So I'm going to do all of this horrible, scary stuff. And then the next word is therefore. Now, if you were to say, okay, what do you think is coming next? I'm going to obliterate everything. I'm cutting you off. The, the, the wine and the oil is all going to be gone. Your vineyards are going to be destroyed. Therefore, right? If you're like me, you're thinking, okay, well, what's about to be said is, therefore, you're not my people anymore. Therefore, you're like going to hell forever. Therefore, we're done. Therefore, like something bad surely is going to follow this therefore but it doesn't. It doesn't. It's, it's fascinating because what follows the therefore is just like wonderful news. It's the gospel. It's not negative. It's not more judgment. It's not condemnation. It's not a declaration that God is done with his people. Not at all. It's exactly the opposite. It's a reminder, actually, that God hasn't forgotten his people. That, that all of this judgment and all of this, this horror that is coming on them isn't because he's forgotten them. It's not because he's forgotten his covenant. It's not because he's walked away from them. It's because he loves them and is disciplining them and is bringing them back to himself. Horrible, bad Scary stuff. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. That's what follows. That's the anticipated response after the statement of certain consequences. Therefore, I will come or I will bring her to me and speak tenderly to her. We start to see that the, the whole point of, of all of this judgment, the whole point of being brought into the wilderness is for God to love his bride and for him to express that love for her. So often, that's just not how we think about the exile. And, and, and frankly, in our own lives, when we feel God's fatherly discipline, that's not how we think about it either. We think about it in terms of like, whew, God dropped the hammer. Stinks to be them. They were so close. 
And, and so often, that's how we feel when we feel God's fatherly discipline. We're like, ah, oh, I guess he doesn't actually love me. But that's not a biblical view of how God's working in his people. It's just not. The exile wasn't about God not being there. God, it, it wasn't about him saying, we're done forever and ever. Period. It was about him bringing them to a place where he would speak tenderly to them and where he would restore them. I'll give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a, a, a door of hope. Now, the valley of Achor, if you go back to Joshua 7, that's where you have to look at 6 and 7 very briefly. Chapter 6 is the battle of Jericho. You know, they go in. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. All that kind of fun stuff that we sing about when we're kids. And, and the, the walls come down and, you know, I almost said the floods come up. That's a different song. Um, but the, the walls came down and there's no stone left unturned and Jericho's defeated and they're supposed to destroy everything. But then Achan and his crew are like, I mean, some of this stuff is pretty legit. And so they take it for themselves. And then chapter seven starts and God's like, uh, yeah. So he tells us that Achan took some stuff and then AI destroys them, destroys Israel. And, and the Israelites are like, what? the heck is going on? He's like, well, this is what happened. I told you to do this, but somebody pocketed some of the goods instead of destroying it. That's why you lost to AI. And, and so they, they go through the whole process of figuring out who it was. It's Achan and his family, and they take him up to the Valley of Achor, and they stone them to death, right? So, and, and the Valley of Achor means Valley of Trouble, right? Appropriately named. And God's saying, I'm going to turn this place that was a place of judgment, a place of destruction, into a door of hope. This valley of trouble, I'm going to turn into a door of hope. And there she shall answer me in the days of her youth as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Now remember for a second, how did Israel answer God when they came out of Egypt? They were, remember, in Deuteronomy, they're like, sweet, we'll do it. We're in. You've saved us from the Egyptians we will do everything that you said. We are down. Of course, they didn't do that. That's why we're where we are now. And the reason they didn't is because their hearts needed to be circumcised. We see this in Deuteronomy 30, which is, which is one of those texts that there's not like better texts than other texts in the Bible. It's all the inspired word of God. But there are texts that are kind of key texts to understanding the story. And Deuteronomy 30 is one of those. After all the blessings and curses are announced in Deuteronomy, you come to chapter 30 and he says, when all of this comes upon you, the blessings and the curses, then I'm going to do something. I'm going to bring you back from the places that I've scattered you. I'm going to circumcise your heart. So the thing that he had been telling them to do, circumcise your heart, follow me. But he says, I'm, gonna, I'm going to do that. And it becomes this unbelievable picture of grace. And it's what Paul picks up on in Romans 10 to announce the gospel. Right? So that's kind of what's behind this. Y'all said y'all would do it. And, and, but, but I'm going to bring you back. And I'm going to bring you back in such a way that you actually can. Because I'm going to circumcise your hearts. So that's kind of the introduction. That's the bridge between the judgment and then this picture of this eschatological, this end-time hope that's going to break into our present reality. Therefore, 
Because I've disciplined you, I'm going to come to you tenderly and you're going to respond in faith because of what I do. And then in verses 16, in verse 18, and in verse 21, you have three statements, and in that day. And then he says what he's going to do. And it breaks these passages, this passage into kind of three sections after this introduction that announces what this eschatological vision for the people of God is. And so here's, here's where we, we are up against this wall, right, of, of the already and the not yet. Because we live after this stuff has been accomplished by Jesus Christ. But we also live before it has all been kind of fully consummated with the return of Christ. And so we live in this tension where, like, we read this and we're like, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. But it's also not fully here yet. And so, so what we have to do is, one, believe these promises, believe what it says is true about us as the people of God. That's the first thing we have to do. The second thing we need to do is give some thought to what it looks like to live right now in the present in light of what is to be but isn't fully yet. Right? We need to give some thought to that reality because what is to be the, the, the fullness of the kingdom of God, that should begin to inform, even though it's not yet, get that? It should begin to inform how we live right now. We can't fully take hold of it. I get that. But it should begin to shape our lives. It should begin to shape our thinking right now. And, and so we can break this passage up. Uh, if, if, and this will come as no surprise to, to most of you probably into, into three sections. The first one, verses 16 and 17, is about identity. The second one, verses 18 through 20, is about security. The third one, uh, verses 21 through 23, is about hope. Hope, identity, security. We talk about that a lot around here because I think it's all over the Bible. And here I think we see it very clear. So first, identity. In that day, in, in the end-time day, that has already come with the advent of Christ, that the, the final days are here, we're living in them, but it's not yet been consummated, okay? In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my bell, for I'll remove those names from your mouth. They won't be remembered anymore. They, they, they get a new identity. They're wed, and this is repeated later, I will betroth you to me forever. They're wed to God. He's, he's their husband. He's the bridegroom. He's the one with whom they are now one, with whom they are identified. He's the one in whom they find themselves. He's the one in whom we find ourselves. There, there, is, there will be no more concept of themselves apart from who he is as their husband. Everything about their identity is found in him. They're defined by, by who he is and who they are to him. It, it's just like when, when, a, when a couple gets married. And, and I get it, it's, it's only the wife that changed her name because logically only one can. But, but all of a sudden, both of them are now defined in terms of their relationship to each other. The two have become one. A new family has been established. And, 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 and these new identities are taken hold of in the marriage. 
Annie Clifton became Annie Hale. And, and how I think about myself has to be in, in reference to her, how she thinks about herself has to be in reference to me. God's saying that's how it's going to be between us. Now, to be fair, to be clear, that's how it should have been already, right? But Israel, and that's the whole point of Hosea, started identifying themselves not just in relation to Yahweh, but in relation to Moloch, in relation to Baal, in relation to the gods that were served at the Asherah poles, that they started farming themselves out, giving themselves away being identified with those who weren't their husband. And God says, I'm going to fix that. In that day, in that day, you'll call me my husband. And you won't run to anything else. Now, we live, of course, with this tension, don't we? Christ has already come, that the bridegroom has already come and and offered the purchase price for his people, us. And we recognize that and we sing songs and we we affirm our faith and, and we say that's who our identity is found in. Our most fundamental identity, who we are, is not in our gender, it's not in our ethnicity, it's not in our our, our political party, it's 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 in Jesus. Most fundamentally who we are is in him. Most fundamentally, what we are. It's not found in in what we do. It's not found in our sin. It's not found in our performance. It's found in, in Him. His righteousness credited to our account. But as we all know, so painfully well, the names haven't been removed from our lips yet, have they? There's still, and this is the already not yet, Christ has already come. He's already called us as his own. He's already, we've already been united to him by faith, by the work of his spirit. But we're not yet free of our flesh. We're not yet free of our eyes for this world. We're not yet free of other loves. Repeatedly, as we hear these calls to these, these exhortations to holiness that we, that we have every Sunday, what are they calling us to? They're, they're calling us to Jesus, aren't they? They're calling us to a single love of Christ, to a single hope, a, a single identity, a single security, all found in him. They're calling us to be faithful to the one who was faithful to us even when we weren't faithful to him. And that's how we've got to continue to learn to think about ourselves. That we belong to him, that the price has been paid, and that he's not letting us go. Even when we fail, he's not letting us go. Our identity is in him. And it's an identity that can't be undone because it's not established on what we do, on what we make ourselves, on how we identify ourselves. It's established on what he has done for us to identify us as belonging to him. He sent his son to die, to take the curse and identify us by his blood 
as belonging to him. That's why in the book of Revelation it talks about that we're presented to Christ as a bride adorned for her husband. He has made us ready for himself. That's why the picture in in Ephesians, in in, in the marriage table, is that's what it's all about. What the husband is supposed to do is prepare the bride. Not because we're so good at it. Y'all all know we're not. But because we're to picture Christ. And that's what he's done. He's prepared us as a bride for himself. And that's what he's doing when he's knocking off all the rough edges and and calling us to repentance and his spirit is at work in our lives. That's what he's doing. He's preparing us for himself. That's our identity. The second on that day is in verse 18 and and it's about security. I, I will make for them a covenant on that day. So here we have another take on the new covenant. The new covenant shows up. It's called the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, but it shows up and we get all kinds of different kind of pieces to the puzzle of what exactly the new covenant is all throughout the prophets. This is one of them. I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things on the ground. What does that have to do with anything? Well, if you go back to Deuteronomy 28 and you read the curses, what you find is that, is that one of the curses is these carrion animals come and devour the bodies of those who have rebelled against God. That's what's going on, as, as I've talked about too many times in the David and Goliath story. When they're trash-talking each other and they're like, I'm going to feed you the birds. Like, that's what's happening. It, it's a profound curse that's, that's all over the Bible and all over the ancient Near Eastern world. Because what it did effectively, or what it did actually that had a metaphorical meaning was it left you as dung unburied on the face of the earth. Like that's kind of the whole picture that's being put out there. And God's saying, that's not going to be a threat anymore. I'm going to make a covenant with the created order, with these animals that that, that were to bring curse upon you and they will not be a threat to you anymore. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm going to roll back the curse that is on you. How? Because Christ took the curse for us. He goes on with with another one that's profound. And I will abolish or break or shatter the bow the sword and war from the land and I will make you lie down in safety. Now here's, here's where we, we, I think we need to really stop and think for a second. This is a place where we go, yes, not yet. That's not where we live yet. And, and, and where, where I think a little bit too comfortable just assigning this idea that shows up in so many passages talking about the eschaton. I think we're a little bit too comfortable just assigning it to the not yet and saying, well, that's clearly not where we are now, so that's not something that we need to try and appropriate. The nature of the kingdom, the nature of the kingdom of God, the nature of the kingdom of Christ is peaceful. It's without war. It's even without weapon. 
how we should long for that. Perhaps this is a place where where we need to to flip over to the Gospels and and, and think about the passage that says, don't work for food that, that perishes. Perhaps this is a place where we need to to flip over to the Gospels and and hear Jesus remind us that our security is in Him. See, I think, and I'm going out on a limb here, but I think it is a profound tragedy. A Gospel-denying tragedy. When the people of God are known for their love for freedom and desire to have the freedom to take vengeance on anyone that threatens them. When we're more known for that than for the love of enemies. I'm not saying it's a sin to have weapons. Don't, please don't put words in my mouth on this point. There's a not yet aspect to it. I get it. But if we're to live kingdom lives even now, I think we need to consider what it means to be known in the world as people of peace. And I think part of what that means is not desiring and working for the freedom to take vengeance on our enemies. One way that we see this helpfully reflected is in the the, the way that the church functions. In Romans 13, we're told that the state still has the power of the sword. The sword hasn't been destroyed. There's still a need for it. I get that. But guess what the church is never said to have? The power of the sword. Why? Why? Because this is where the kingdom has broken into the world. And so our discipline doesn't look like something that comes with bow and sword and war and execution. But something that comes with a call to repentance and to rest in the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. There's there's no string of attributes of God being applied to us that could present a more secure standing. I will betroth you to me in righteousness. How? Because the justice of God has been settled and Jesus Christ and his righteousness has been credited to our account. I will betroth you to me in justice. How? Because God poured out all of his wrath. He didn't let a single drop of what was due for his sinful people go, but poured it all out on Jesus Christ so that his redemption of us is perfectly just. 
I will betroth you to me in steadfast love. That, that beautiful Hebrew word, chesed, this, this covenant love, this covenant faithfulness. I will betroth you to me based on my keeping of the covenant, based on my keeping of my word, based on what I'm doing, based on who I am, based on how I am towards you. That's how I will betroth you to me. That's what Hosea, as a prophet, was being called to do in this metaphorical picture in his own marriage. I will betroth you to me in mercy. That's the nature of our relationship with God if we are his children. We're the recipients of mercy from him. That's the basis of our marriage to God. Not our beauty, not our becomeness, not our ability, not anything that he looked on us and saw and was like, okay, that's, oh, can you even imagine? No. The basis of our relationship to God is his showing mercy to us. Remember what he said to the Israelites when you come into the land? Don't think that it's because you're so much bigger than everybody because you're not. Don't think it's because you're righteous, because you're hard-hearted. Don't think it's for anything other than I chose to have mercy on you. Is that how you think about your relationship with God? That the entire basis of it is his willingness, his desire to show mercy to you. If you think, I've got to work, I've got to perform to keep God happy, to keep God in this for me, then you're not thinking about your relationship with him on the basis of mercy. You're free to fail. Why? Because the basis of your relationship to your husband Your your heavenly husband is not your performance, but his mercy. And his mercy is new every morning. I'm not saying you should go out and fail. I'm just saying, if the basis is mercy, then I'm not lost when I do. And neither are you. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. I think we should read this not as, as our faithfulness, but as his. His faithfulness. His faithfulness to what? His faithfulness to his covenant promises to do this thing for his people. And you shall know the Lord. The, the idea here is this, when we know him in his righteousness in his justice, in his steadfast love, in his mercy, in his faithfulness. Again, this affects how we live now. It affects how we think about our lives now in this in-between times. And we begin to see, because he will betroth us to himself forever, that we're perfectly secure in Jesus Christ. Hope. 
And in that day, once again, another picture of what this day is going to look like. I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. What in the world is going on with this, like, cosmic game of telephone? Here's what's going on. If we go back to the beginning of chapter 2, what has happened is he's cut off the wine, he's cut off the oil, he's cut off the rains, he's cut off their vineyards, he's cut off all of the blessings. And he's saying, in that day, I will call out, and the heavens are going to answer, and the grain is going to answer, and the wine is going to answer, and the oil is going to answer, and it's all going to flow bountifully. I hope for a future based not on our performance, but on the proclamation of God himself. A proclamation that all of creation answers. As we're told in Romans 8.22, that that all of creation waits for the day of redemption. It's, It's longing, it's groaning for this day. What day? This day. The day when God himself answers all of the curses, all of the judgment, all of the destruction for his people, and all of creation bursts forth in a bounty of hallelujah for provision and grace and life and hope and future for his people. That's the kingdom. That's the kingdom of God. That's what was before them as they were going into exile. That's what we get a foretaste of now as Christ has broken in to this cursed world and brought his kingdom with it. And that in its fullness is what we have to look forward to. When everything is made right again. And they shall answer Jezreel. This Jezreel is this valley that has come up a couple of times. If, if you were to translate it literally, it means God will sow. It's from the, the verb Zarah uh, and, and, and the name of God, El. So you've got Yazreel, right? You can kind of see how that goes together with my ridiculous shot at Hebrew. But, but that's what's going on. I will sow everything. I will do this. Now look at the very next verse. And I will sow. Yes, same verb, Zarah. And I will sow her for myself in the land. I will establish her. I will establish her in life. I will, says God. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. And this is the passage that Paul picks up on in Romans 9, 25, and 26 to remind us that that we Gentiles receive mercy too. That we Gentiles, as, as Rob read to us from Ephesians 2, who were aliens and strangers, have been brought into the commonwealth. We've been brought into the family of God. We're counted as true citizens because of what Jesus Christ did on his cross. Because he betrothed us to himself in righteousness and justice and steadfast love, in mercy and in faithfulness forever. Because he has given us a new name 
and has put my husband in our mouths as our name for him. Therefore, God says, I will do all of this for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope of the gospel. We thank you that that it abounds more and more. And we long for the fullness of the kingdom. And ask that as we live now in this between times, that you would teach us by your spirit and in boldness by your spirit to live in light of the kingdom to which we belong. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of Scripture and theology.